Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. Time really gets away from me sometimes. It's hard for me to believe that the last time we descended into the crypt was back in September, eight long months ago. I've always been challenged with time. I find it gets the best of me. I allow it to devour me, suffocate me. It wraps its arms around me, consuming every fiber of my being. Rather than seeing what I have accomplished or did with my time, I instead look at all the things I did not do. That script left unwritten, the crypt episode not recorded, the book unread, or the movie not reviewed. I become plagued with guilt. It's a nasty little habit. Wretched. I am sure some of my goblins and ghouls can relate. This past year in particular has been especially difficult, and despite for time trying to say otherwise, I have accomplished quite a bit. Which is why now, with you, my fellow crypt dwellers, I shall take an oath to stop allowing the darkness of time to overtake me in a way that causes shame or despair. Instead, I shall celebrate in the darkness, and remember that with a simple strike of a match, I can always conjure a flame to help guide me. On this program, I have spoken previously about various projects that I am working on. Well, everything has gotten placed on the back burner for the moment, goblins and ghouls. As you most likely have figured out, I am a dabbler of sorts. I am easily distracted and fascinated by mystifying things. I am a curious being. However, I've come to realize that I can't do everything at least not all at once, which is why I am trying my darndest, crypt dwellers, to focus on a select few interests with the use of a task list. At the top of this task list is the follow-up project to Pizza Man, the slasher short that I co-wrote and co-directed with my best friend forever, Katie McBrown. Our project has been submitted to various film festivals, and we are keeping our fingers crossed that we will get some good news soon on a premiere. For the moment, at least, I ask that you forget about all of my previous script endeavors. For now, I will be focusing on the follow-up project to Pizza Man. We will be writing an amusement park slasher. When four teens decide to visit an abandoned amusement park, they don't realize that this, in fact, Maybe their last ride. Palisades has the rides, Palisades has the fun. Come on over. Shows and dancing are free, so's the parking, so gee. Come on over. Palisades from coast to coast, where a dime buys the most. Palisades amusement park swings all day and after dark. Ride the coaster, get cool in the waves, in the pool, you'll have fun. So come on 
friend in my life who wanted to see a magic trick you know yeah. I don't know anybody who's who wants to see a magic trick so I do it professionally <laughs> it's the only way I get to perform you know? Well, you, know, you know there are people in the world who say show us a, a, a trick you know I went once I went once to a to a, a birthday party for Louis B Mayer with a rabbit in my pocket which I was going to take out of his hat and uh, on came Judy Garland and Danny Kay and Danny Thomas and everybody you ever heard of. And then Al Jolson sang for two hours and my rabbit was peeing all <laughs> over me, you know. And at the dawn was starting to rise over the Hillcrest Country Club as we said goodnight to Louis B. Mayer. And nobody would asked me to do a magic trick. <laughs> but the rabbit and I went home. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what makes a good magician? He said seriously. <laughs> seriously, what makes a good magician? He's a man who can get that rabbit out in time. <laughs> Another hobby I have picked up since we last spoke has been magic. I've become rather smitten with the art of illusion, and through some reading, learned that Orson Welles was too. Great minds think alike, goblins and ghouls, and I will keep you abreast of my learnings as I dive into Mark Wilson's complete book of magic. Other than writing the screenplay with Katie McBrown and learning magic, I am keeping the rest of my time open for some reading and relaxation. I don't want to find myself succumbing to the coffin, my dear goblins and ghouls, for we have many corpses to uncover and movies to watch. Mwah. Hello. Oh, hello, Ira. Oh, I just loved you, but, but I have an assignment for an interview. And boy, guess who? Oh, no, no, you're all wrong. It's Bela Lugosi. Yes, a mystery man. Well, what was your first mystery play? Well, Dracula. Oh, did the role depress you? Very much. It haunted me. I often dreamed of the dead. And now, our feature presentation. All right, film pals. Time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. today's episode, I will pick up where we left off from episode 22 and uncover another ghostly flick, David Lean's 1945 film, Blythe Spirit, starring Rex Harrison, Constance Cummings, Margaret Rutherford, and today's corpse of interest, Kay Hammond. Well over a thousand performances in London alone, and still running. In America, two years on Broadway, 
Audiences in all the key cities have flocked to see it. Noel Card's Blythe Spirit. Once upon a time, there was a charming country house in which lived a very happily married couple. And you seriously expect me to believe that you weren't drunk? I know I wasn't drunk. If I'd been all that drunk, I'd have a dreadful hangover now, wouldn't I? I'm not at all sure that you haven't. Well, I haven't got a trace of a headache. My tongue's not coated. Look at it. I've not the least desire to look at your tongue. Kindly put it in again. Or maybe I should have said they were a happily married couple until... Is there anyone there who wishes to speak to anyone here? Ah, now we're getting somewhere. Is it Mr. Condamine? There's someone who wishes to speak to you, Mr. Condamine. Well, tell them to leave a message. Offer to pick it up or leave it where it is? Well, how the devil should I know? Well, there's no need to snap, isn't it? I suppose you'd better pick it up. Leave it where it is. Who said that? Who said what? Somebody said, leave it where it is. Oh, nonsense, dear. I heard it distinctly. Nobody else did, did they? Ventriloquism, that's what it is, ventriloquism. Before long, he found himself with two wives. Well, don't be upset, Ruth, dear. We shall adjust ourselves, you know. You must admit it's a unique position. I can see no reason why we shouldn't get a great deal of fun out of it. Fun? How can you, Charles? You must be out of your mind. Yes, I thought I was at first, but now I must admit I began to enjoy myself. That was the original trailer from Blythe Spirit that I just played for you, my goblins and ghouls. What may come as a surprise, if you choose to watch the trailer, is that Kay Hammond is actually not featured. Being that she plays a ghost, they decided to instead just show doors and windows being opened to indicate her presence. Born in London, England, Dorothy Catherine Standing, on February 18, 1909, she became known as Kay Hammond. As the daughter of a distinguished actor, Sir Guy Standing, it is no surprise that Kay also decided to pursue a career in the performing arts. Kay studied acting at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, England, and first started to appear on the stage in 1927 at the age of 18 in the play Tilly of Bloomsbury. Her most memorable role was her appearance in the Noel Coward play, Blythe Spirit, in July of 1941 at Piccadilly Theatre. This is where she first played the role of Elvira, and would later reprise that role in the 1945 film. It was said, even in her ghostly makeup and green hair, Kay was irresistible. Kay managed to rack up 28 credits, including film and TV movies. In terms of the silver screen, she would become most known for her ghostly role as the lady with the seafoam tint hue, bright red lipstick, and nails. The character, Elvira. Unfortunately, after her appearance in Blythe Spirit, Kate made very few appearances on the silver screen. In fact, she only appeared in one other film in 1948 entitled Call of the Blood. After this, she was found appearing in made-for-TV films. She did continue to perform on the stage, though, until 1959, in which she performed alongside her husband, John Clements, in the play The Marriage Go-Around. 
Due to a deteriorating heart condition, Kay found herself confined in a wheelchair and forced to step away from her acting endeavors. She passed away on May 4, 1980 at the age of 71 from causes that were unknown and was cremated with her ashes being scattered in a memorial garden at Downs Crematorium in Brighton, East Sussex. Blythe Spirit was a supernatural comedy play written by Noel Coward. It tells the story of a man who accidentally conjures up his dead wife. When she appears, she decides to have a hauntingly good time scaring not just him, but his second wife as well. Prior to making its way to the silver screen, Coward had turned down numerous offers from Hollywood, looking to buy the film rights, as he found his previous plays that were adapted had been, quote, vulgarized, distorted, and ruined, unquote. Instead, the rights were sold to Cineguild Productions, a production company that was managed by director David Lean, cinematographer Ronald Neem, and producer Anthony Avlock Allen in 1944, all of whom would go to work on the film in their respective roles. The film would be shot in Technicolor, which if you've picked up Movie John's Winter 2021 issue, featuring and celebrating color in film, you will find I recently showcased some of my favorite Technicolor fashions, even spotlighting Kay Hammond's wares in Blythe Spirit. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. It just starts in black and white. Technicolor was primarily used in Hollywood from 1922 to 1952. The look was achieved through a three-color process. The camera would capture separate color records on three strips of film. It was known for being highly saturated and required extremely bright lights. The lights utilized were stronger than those even used for black and white films. Blythe Spirit would mark David Lean's first time attempting to direct a comedy. Heading into production, Noel Coward had some apprehensions, informing Lean to, quote, just photograph it, dear boy, unquote, meaning that there was no need to mess with the story, just shoot it, as it is on the paper. Well, David Lean had a difference of opinion. In the adaptation which he shares a writing credit for, he made various changes, adding more exterior scenes, as prior to this, of course, being that it was a play, the story took place primarily in one room. The biggest change came at the end of the film, which it was said Noel Coward strongly objected to and felt Lean ruined one of his best plays ever written. Blythe Spirit's opening credits includes a statement that says, When we are young, we read and believe the most fantastic things. When we grow older and wiser, we learn, with perhaps a little regret, that these things can never be. We are quite wrong. Well, goblins and ghouls, I still believe in the most fantastic of things, including ghosts. The film opens with Charles Cotamine, played by Rex Harrison, who you may recall my fellow crypt dwellers, was uncovered on episode 15 when I dissected the 1947 film, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Charles and his wife Ruth are having a dinner party. They have also invited another couple and an eccentric medium, Madame Arcadi, to their home to perform a seance. That was her. 
that's her, is it? I've seen her in the village several times. She certainly is a strange woman. The vicar told me he saw her up on the knoll on Midsummer Eve, dressed in sort of Indian robes. Apparently, she's been a professional in London for years. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, to think of people doing it as a profession. Mm, I believe it's very lucrative. What does Mr. Condamine hope to get out of her? Material for his book. He's writing a mystery story, you know. Charles is a mystery novelist, and he has invited Madame McCarty to his home in hopes of learning the tricks of the trade, so to speak, for his next book. Do you believe in it, Mrs. Condamine? Do you think there's anything really genuine about it at all? Oh, I'm afraid not, but I do think it's interesting how easily people Thank allow you. themselves to be deceived. But she must believe it herself, mustn't she, or is the whole business a fake? I suspect the worst, a real professional charlatan. That's what I'm hoping for, anyhow. The character that I'm planning for my book must be a complete imposter. It's one of the most important factors of the whole story. Do you think she tells fortunes? I love having my fortune told. <laughs> yes, I expect so. Before Madame McCarty begins the ritual, she has to wet her whistle. She downs a few cocktails and takes questions from her patrons, such as, how does she get in touch with people on the other side? Does she feel funny when she goes into a trance? Can she tell fortunes? Unbeknownst to the Cotamines and their guests, a charlatan Madame McCarty is not. When the seance begins, they try to hold back their laughter, but suddenly, things become quite real. Is there anyone there? One rap for yes, two raps for no. Is there anyone there? Oh, is that you, Daphne? Is your cold better, dear? Oh, I'm so sorry. Are you doing anything for it? I'm afraid she's very fretful. <laughs> Is there anyone there who wishes to speak to anyone here? Madame McCarty finds herself in a trance of sorts, which in turn causes Charles to start hearing the voice of his dead wife, Elvira. He asks the others if they too can hear someone, but none of them can, so Charles quickly dismisses it as a joke. Once Sicardi recovers, she feels that something quite extraordinary did occur. She can feel it in the air, but everyone, including Charles, denies it. Madame Accardi departs on her bicycle, and the couple head out as well. Charles tries to convince Ruth, after everyone's gone, that he did indeed hear a voice. Unfortunately for Charles, Ruth just feels he is off his rocker. Getting very chilly. Oh my! Charles, that was very clumsy, Charles dear. Oh Vera, then it's true. It, it was you. Of course it was. Charles, darling, Charles, what are you talking about? Are you um, a ghost? I suppose I must be. It's all very confusing. What do you keep looking over there for? Look at me. What's happened? When Kay Hammond as Elvira first makes an appearance is when the film really picks up speed for me. I absolutely adore her seafoam green tint, bright red cherry nails, and lipstick and blonde hair. In creating Elvira's ghostly look, Lean and the cinematographer Ronald Neem made the choice not to use double exposure. Instead, they created a gigantic set so that the actor could move freely in every shot. Hammond was donned in fluorescent green clothes, makeup, and a wig, and each time she moved, a special light followed her to allow the figure to glow even in dimly lit scenes and give her a supernatural appearance. Come and sit down, darling. What do you mean to say you can't see her? Look, Charles, 
You just sit down quietly with the fire and I'll fix you another drink. Don't worry about the mess in the carpet. Edith can clean that up in the morning. But you must be able to see her. She's here. Look, right in front of you, here. Look, Charles, if this is a joke, it's gone far enough. Now sit down and don't be idiotic. Oh, what am I to do? What the devil am I to do? Well, I really think you might be a little more pleased to see me. After all, you conjured me up. I didn't do any such thing. Nonsense, of course you did. Upon Elvira's arrival, the relationship between Ruth and Charles continues to become strained. Ruth is convinced that Charles' ramblings of ghosts and spirits are nothing more than those of a drunken buffoon, convinced that his drinking is causing him to see specters. To persuade Ruth that he is not stark raving mad, Charles requests that Elvira perform some poltergeist antics. I want to explain to you calmly and without emotion that beyond any shadow of doubt, the ghost or shade or whatever you like to call it of my first wife, Elvira, is in this room now. Yes, dear. I know you don't believe me and you're trying valiantly to humor me, but I'm going to prove it to you. Promise you'll do what I ask. Well, that depends on what it is. Ruth, you see this bowl of flowers on the table? Yes, dear, I did them myself this morning. Very untidily, if I may say so. You may not. Very well, I never will again, I promise. Uh, Elvira will now carry the bowl of flowers over to you and back again. Now, you will, Elvira, won't you, just to please me? Yeah, well, just once, please. Thank you. Now, watch carefully, Ruth. Yes, dear. Well, go on, Elvira, take them over to Ruth. How dare you, Charles? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Well, what on earth for? Well, it's a trick. I know it's a trick. After the ghastly display, Ruth decides she needs to pay a visit to Madame Accardi to help send Elvira back to where she came from. Speaking of which, I think it is time, crypt dwellers, for our spooky intermission of sorts. Let's venture to the morgue, shall we? To chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Margaret Rutherford, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the Come inside. Oh, do go into the sitting room, Mrs. Carnegie. Now, just in time for a cup of tea. That's if you don't mind, China. Not at all. I never touch Indian. It upsets my vibrations. Well, do come and sit down. Good egg. I'll have this made in a jiffy. Uh, Madame Alcotti, I'm profoundly disturbed, and I want your help. Splendid. I thought as much. Well, far away. It's most awfully difficult to explain. Well, facts first. Explanations afterwards. It's the facts that are so difficult to explain. They are so fantastic. Facts very often are. Come now, take the plunge. Out with it. You've heard strange noises in the night, no doubt. Boards creaking, doors slamming, subdued moaning in the passages. Isn't that it? No, I'm afraid it isn't. No sudden gusts of cold wind, I hope. No. It's worse than that. I'm all attention. I know it sounds idiotic, but the other night, during the seance, something happened. I knew it. Probably a poltergeist. They're enormously cunning, you know. They sometimes lie doggo for days. Good evening, Dr. Carruthers. How are you doing on this fine, moonlit night? 
Oh, very well, very well. I'm just working on some science-y things, as one does. How about you? Well, I've been decorating the crypt with some of my new Halloweenies that I picked up, and I'm most excited to take this jaunt to the morgue today. Tonight, I even dusted off my bicycle and enjoyed the crisp air with my cape blowing in the breeze. It was quite thrilling. Well, what a coincidence. For the specimen we have on the slab tonight, Margaret Rutherford, she too enjoys a bike ride, as was shown in the flick you're featuring on the crypt, Blythe Spirit. Oh, good evening. Hmm? I've lent my bike up against that little bush out there. It'll be perfectly all right if no one touches it. How nice to see you, Madame Arcati. My dear Madame Arcati. I'm afraid I'm rather late, but I had a sudden presentiment that I was going to have a puncture, so I went back to fetch my pump. And then, of course, I didn't have a puncture at all. Well, perhaps you will on the way home. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, you know... Oh, Dr. Bratton, the man with the gentle hands. I'm delighted to see you looking so well. <laughs> this is my wife. We are old friends. We meet coming out of shops. Would you like a cocktail? If it's a dry martini, yes. If it's a concoction, no. Experience has taught me to be very wary of concoctions. It is a dry martini. How delicious. Oh, I simply adore her as Madame Arcadi in The Blythe Spirit. Do you know she played this role in the live stage production as well? Oh, I didn't know that, but it makes sense because she steals every scene she's in in this movie. Yeah, I cannot imagine someone else playing the role. She's just so perfect for it. Agreed. I was quite surprised. I have only seen her in this, and so I don't want to waste any time. Let's get to dissecting. Why, yes. Scalpel, please. We shall begin with discussing five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, her eccentric personality. Number two, the fact that she was a scene stealer. Number three, her piercing eyes. Number four, her being prim yet informal. And number five, her sharp sense of humor. I have to say, when it comes to her role in this movie, I love how she began her work once she arrives at that house, first thing, with a very dry martini. Yes. But she won't have a concoction, as she calls other drinks that she tries to stay away from, but only a dry martini. And she downs it in like one gulp, which is quite impressive. I mean, she did also seem to talk an awful lot about Ovaltine. Like, I wish I kept track of how many times she mentioned Ovaltine by name, but for myself, I'd, I'd go for the martini. Yes, and also along the line of when she drank the martini, she immediately asked for another one. Yeah. He was like, oh, would you like another? Yes. <laughs> there was no hesitation. Yeah, the Ovaltine was perplexing to me. <laughs> I feel like was she trying to get a sponsorship or some sort of deal out of it? Must be. Because it kept coming up. Yeah. I I personally have never tasted Ovaltine, but I remember as a child seeing the ridiculous commercials. <laughs> More Ovaltine, please. So that's that. Are you all right? Certainly I am, my dear. I never felt better in my life. Well, what happened? Was satisfactory. Oh, nothing much happened, Madame Arcati, after you went off. And something happened, all right. I can feel it. No poltergeist, at any rate. That's a good thing. Any apparitions? Not a thing. 
What, no ectoplasm? I'm not quite sure what that is, but I don't think so. Curious, I feel as if something tremendous had taken place. Charles pretended he heard a voice to try and frighten us. It was only a joke. A poor one, if I may say so. Nevertheless, I'm prepared to swear that there's someone else psychic in this room, apart from myself. I don't really see how there could be, Madame Alcotti. I do hope I haven't gone and released something. However, we're bound to find out within a day or two. If any manifestation should occur, or you hear any unexpected noises, you might let me know at once. Oh, of course we will. We'll get in touch with you immediately. Well, I really think I must be on my way now. Wouldn't you like something before you go? Oh, no, thank you. I have some Ovaltine already in a saucepan at home. It only needs hotting up. <laughs> it just seemed, even as a child, like I felt it was fake. Obnoxious. Right. Like, there's no possible way that that drink is good. <laughs> I don't know, we never had it in our home. Now, have you ever seen her portray uh, the Agatha Christie detective, Miss Marple? I'm very intrigued with one of the titles I saw, Murder Most Foul. I actually have seen a couple of her Miss Marple movies. I, th I think I've seen a, at least a couple or a few, but lots of them were when I was a kid with my grandmother and I don't really recall which ones they were but I do know for sure that I did watch the first one called Murder She Said and it wasn't actually that long ago. I think that she was quite different from the description of Miss Marple in the books if you've read any of those but regardless she was so great in that role. Uh, she's so funny, her no-nonsense attitude and her sharp humor, they're definitely on display here. And I, what can I say? I love the older woman solving murders type of character. Yeah, I know you're a huge fan of murders she wrote. Yeah. Yeah, and surprisingly I did see when I was looking through research here that apparently at some point Angela Lansbury portrayed Madame McCarty on one of the stage productions of Blythe oh. Spirit like later, which I thought was really cool. Very interesting. Yeah, and I did do a Google image search of Margaret as Miss Marple, and I absolutely love her style. There are some crazy hats that this lady wore. And then she had a lot of, I saw like capes. At one point, I think she even possibly had a cane in one yep. of the pictures. Yes. Yep. So, you know, I will definitely be seeking out these detective movies, but what did you think of her clothes and accessories in Blythe Spirit? Well, I loved her eccentric look. She definitely was different from everyone else in the movie. I loved all her beads and how her clothing was kind of mismatched. But the thing I loved most was how she carried herself. Like she, she often like stood around, she had her hands on her back and she had her chest sticking out like as far as possible. And I, I found it quite funny. And I've decided this is how I'm gonna, gonna walk around now, always. Well, yes, of course. I, I do approve of this as I feel the way she did carry herself was much like a creature. <laughs> I, of course, enjoyed it. And when you mentioned her stealing scenes earlier on, 
one of my favorite parts of this movie is when she tells Ruth off. Because Ruth was no. She definitely needed some poison. Well, that's true. The time has come for me to admit to you frankly, Mrs. Condamine, that I haven't the faintest idea how to get rid of her. Do you mean to sit there and tell me that having mischievously conjured up this ghost or spirit or whatever she is and placed me in a hideous position, you are unable to do anything about it? Well, honesty is the best policy. But this is outrageous. I, I ought to hand you over to the police. You go too far, Mrs. Condamine. I go too far indeed. Do you realize what your insane amateur muddling has done? I have been a professional ever since I was a child, Mrs. Condamine. Amateur is a word that I cannot tolerate. It seems to me to be the height of amateurishness to evoke malignant spirits and not be able to get rid of them. You resent your tone, Mrs. Condamine. I really do. You most decidedly have no right to. You are to blame for the whole horrible situation. May I remind you that I came to your house on your own invitation? On my husband's invitation? The whole thing was planned in order for him to get material for a mystery story he's writing about a homicidal medium. Am I to understand that I was only invited in a spirit of mockery? No, 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 not at all. He merely wanted to make notes of some of the tricks of the trade. Tricks of the trade? Insufferable! I've never been so insulted in my life! I feel we have nothing more to say to one another, Mrs. Condamine. But, Madame Arcati, please! Your attitude from the outset has been most unpleasant. Some of your remarks have been discourteous in the extreme, and I would like to say, without umbrage, that if you and your husband have been foolish enough to tamper with the unseen for paltry motives, and in a spirit of ribaldry, whatever has happened to you is your own fault. And to coin a phrase, as far as I'm concerned, you can stew in your own juice. Good afternoon, Mrs. Condon. I also loved the montage of the mini-experiments scene. Now, I love a montage anytime. But when you're dealing with spooky rituals, well, I don't know, you just don't see it as much as, say, like a sports training montage. I really loved this one. It was top drawer. Yeah, I, I agree. I quite enjoyed that as well. And I wish that there was more spooky montages in film. Frankly, more seances in films would be quite pleasing to me. So this is a little random, but did you read about the tragedy concerning her father? Apparently, prior to Margaret being born, her father committed murder by killing his own father. And then, after a stint in a sanatorium, he was later released and reunited with his wife. They, of course, had Margaret. But at the age of three, she had to go on to live with her uncle in England after her mother committed suicide by hanging herself from a tree, and poor Margaret was a little orphan. Yeah, that is so sad. I do feel for her so much. I mean, especially as a fellow orphan. I heard an interview where she described herself as a grave child. She said, my face was oval like a bantam egg, and I had green eyes round as pennies. I wrinkled my nose like a rabbit, a mannerism I still have today. I was also a lonely child. This made me feel for her. So, is this a description of all orphans? Or am I incorrect in thinking that? I wouldn't have the slightest clue. Really? In all seriousness, though, I found, you know, her situation to be absolutely heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, it's what led to her never wanting to have kids. 
And, you know, that was because she feared that they too would suffer from a mental illness similar to her parents. So this caused her to have much depression and anxiety. And speaking of which, how did she pass? Well, Rutherford suffered from Alzheimer's disease at the end of her life, and she was unable to work. Her spouse, Stringer Davis, cared for his wife at their Buckinghamshire home until her death on May 22nd, 1972, at the age of 80. Wow, so you and Margaret have two things in common. You're both orphans, and you're both married to someone with the last name Davis. (laughs) Very interesting. (laughs) Mystifying. I think it's time we grab the blankie. Yes, it's been nice seeing you, Margaret. Have a good sleepy. Good night. Good night. (laughs) Good night. (laughs) And now, on with the show. Welcome back, my goblins and ghouls. I hope you enjoyed that brief intermission to the morgue. We return to our ghostly, supernatural tale of Elvira in the 1945 film Blythe Spirit. After her visit to Madame McCarty, Ruth tries to convince Charles that Elvira is attempting to reunite with him, and that the only way this could be arranged is via his demise. Charles. Yeah? Where's Elvira? She slipped out of the front door, Dr. Bradman. Are you sure she's not here? Yes, quite sure. Good. I want to talk to you. Oh, dear. You're not going to start making scenes again, are you? This is a fight, Charles. It's a duel to the death between Elvira and me. Oh, melodramatic hysteria. The poor little thing comes back trustingly after all these years in the other world. Elvira is about as trusting as a puff adder and a good deal more dangerous into the bargain. Dangerous? She came here with one purpose and one purpose only. And if you can't see it, you're a bigger fool than I thought you. What purpose could she have beyond the natural desire to see me again? After all, you must remember she was extremely attached to me, poor child. Her purpose is perfectly obvious. It's to get you to herself forever. That's absurd. How could she? By killing you off, of course. Killing me off? You're mad. Ruth storms out of the house, stating she is headed back to Madame McCarty's for help. Well, this is when things get wild, my goblins and ghouls. Ruth's suspicions were right. Elvira did indeed want Charles to be transported to the spirit side, so much so that she tampered with his car in hopes that he would succumb in an automobile accident. Unfortunately for Elvira, more so for Ruth, who finds herself behind the wheel only to meet a fateful end. Dom, I haven't done anything. Elvira, you're lying. I'm not lying. I want you to lie about it. What are you going to set a state for? I'm going to state it. I don't know what you mean. You've done something dreadful. Don't look at me like that, Charles. I haven't. I swear I haven't. The car. That's it, the car. No, Charles, no. Ruth was right. You were trying to kill me. You've done something to the car. Hello, yes? Speaking? Yes? The bridge at the bottom of the hill. Yes, yes, come at once. Of course. With now two ghosts on the loose, who is Charles gonna call? That's right, Madame McCarty. When Madame McCarty arrives, she speaks of the smell of ectoplasm, a viscous, clear substance that often is associated with those of the spirit world. She also brings with her a formula that she hopes to assist her 
with ridding Charles of his ghastly wives. Madame McCarty attempts various incantations, but none of them seem to accomplish the goal of banishing the spirits from which they came. Now look here, Charles. This has gone far enough. We've stood up, we've lain down, we've concentrated, we've sat interminably while that tiresome old woman recited extremely unflattering verses at us. We've endured five seances, we've watched her fling herself in and out of trances until we're dizzy, and at the end of it we find ourselves exactly where we were at the beginning, and I'm exhausted. Well, I'm just as exhausted as you are. I've been doing all the blasted table tapping. Looks as if Elvira and I'll have to stay together indefinitely in this house. You're not going to stay indefinitely in this house. With you, then. We shall have to be with you. I don't see why. Why don't you take a cottage somewhere? You called us back. I've already explained till I'm black in the face that I did nothing of the sort. Madame Arcati says you did. Madame Arcati is a muddling old fool. Well, if she can't get us back, she can't, and that's that. We must try to think of something else. Well, she must get you back. Anything else is unthinkable. There's gratitude for you. You've called us back, and you've done nothing to try to get rid of us ever since we came, hasn't he, Elvira? He certainly has. Now, owing to your idiotic inefficiency, we find ourselves in this mortifying position. We're neither fish, flesh, fowl, nor whatever it is. Good, Good red, red herring. herring. After much flim-flam and shenanigans, it appears that Madame McCarty's spell finally does work. Charles decides, after all the chaos, to set out on a long, restful vacation. And who does he find himself joined by? Well, goblins and ghouls, I think you should watch to find out. Mwah. Goodbye for the moment, my dears. I expect we're bound to meet again one day, but until we do, I'm going to enjoy myself as I've never enjoyed myself before. As with most of Noel Coward's work, Blythe's spirit would be recognized for the captivating and entertaining dialogue. I simply have to disagree with Coward's sentiment of the motion picture, as I think this is such a fun watch. I love Kay Hammond's portrayal of Elvira, and she gives such a mischievous tone that is simply so amusing to watch. I also love the way that she torments Charles. I would be remiss if I did not mention the superb camera work here as well. This is another film in which the Technicolor truly brings the story to life. I love the choice that director Lean made in regards to how he showed the ghost of Elvira. There was a remake of this film that most recently was released earlier this year, starring Dan Stevens, Isla Fisher, Judy Dench as Madame McCarty, and Leslie Mann as Elvira. I reviewed this rendition over at moviejohn.com and quite enjoyed the movie, as it was great escapism. I was happy to see the director, Edward Hall, did not resort to shoddy effects in creating the ghost of Elvira. She may not have been donning a green hue, but I appreciated the way in which she was portrayed. Check it out if you can, goblins and ghouls. It's available for rent now and for sale digitally. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in checking out this flick, at the time of this recording, you can actually find it on HBO Max or the Criterion channel. Otherwise, visit JustWatch.com to see where else it may be available. I personally own a physical copy that came in a David Lean and Noel Coward box set, available from the Criterion Collection. It includes four films that the duo collaborated on, including the heartbreaking yet beautiful tale, Brief Encounter. In my next episode, I'm going to start something new here on The Crypt. 
Beginning with episode 24, I will begin doing series of sorts. These series will consist of four to five films in which I dissect motion pictures with similar premises but different cadavers. The first entry in this series will be entitled Heavenly Mistakes, and I will kick things off by uncovering the corpse of Robert Montgomery to dissect his 1941 film, Here Comes Mr. Jordan. I will also be joined by my fellow classic coroner. Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers to autopsy character corpse Claude Rains. Hope you tune in. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on the air. So take note, goblins and ghouls, a raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. Mwah! So log into iTunes to leave your own review, or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also, thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. If you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw It In A Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal, Ryan Silberstein. This weekly podcast features a rotation of Movie John pals to serve as experts to answer all of your burning questions. No question is too silly. Maybe you are wondering where to start in silent film watching, or what to do with that creepy doll that is hiding out in your attic. Ask away by contacting us on Twitter at I Saw It In A Movie, email at dear I Saw It In A Movie at gmail.com, or if you're old fashioned like your favorite little gravedigger, you can contact us via snail mail at Attention Movie John, and that's M O V I E. J-A-W-N, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, P.A. 19145. Also, because I don't like to sleep, my goblins and ghouls, since our last visit, I have started yet another podcast with my best friend forever and fellow filmmaker, Katie McBrown, entitled Best Friends Forever. Each episode, we invite you to our slumber party where we gab about a flick featuring the heartthrob of the month. All of my shows are part of the Movie John Podcast Network, and you can find all the information about them on our website at moviejohn.com under MJ Podcasts. This is also where you can subscribe to our print quarterly movie publication. Well, I thought that love was over, and we were really through. I said I didn't love him. That we'd begin anew And you can all believe me We sure intended to But we just couldn't say goodbye Well, the chair and then the sofa They broke right down and cried The curtains started waving For me to come inside I tell you confidentially The tears were hard to hide But we just couldn't say goodbye It is now time to close the coffin 
Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Elvira. Not dead, passed over. It's considered very vulgar to say dead where I come from. Even in speaking about death, one should have proper etiquette, goblins and ghouls. Goodbye, film pals.